Good afternoon. I think uh, my name is Eugene Meyer. I'm president of the Federal Society, and I'm the moderator for, for this panel. Uh, I think some of you are finishing your desserts, and please go ahead and do that. But we, we, we wanted to get going to allow plenty of time for uh, questions after our uh, debaters' presentations. Uh, uh, this, this, this panel... On, entitled FBI Search Legal and Policy Questions uh, is co-sponsored by the Federal Society's Criminal Law Practice Group and it's uh, federal and, and our Federalism and Separation of Powers Practice Group. Uh, there should be materials on both uh, out, out in front there. And if you if you you know let let us know if you would like to be on the uh, uh, if you are not currently and would like to be on the uh, email list for being contacted about about such programs. It. <clears throat> Was something which was lots of grist for the the, the humor mills around town when uh, the leadership in the House burst out with extreme indignation over the over the raid of Congressman Jefferson's office. Not presumably, if I might editorialize for a moment, because people thought this was a totally innocent person who was being railroaded, but because this was. The, per, the prerogatives of, 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 of members of the uh, House or members of Congress that th- they were worried uh, uh, something something was being done to to, effect, to affect them. And what was striking uh, to a lot of people and to the to the and to all the uh, comedians was, gee, you know, here's something finally Congress gets up in arms about. However, what we want to do is have a discussion of. The, of the merits of what's going on, what what legal questions are posed here, or are there really serious legal questions posed? And regardless of the legal questions, are there policy questions posed about uh, the the, uh, the search of uh, uh, Congressman Jefferson's office? Uh, to do to participate in this debate, we have we have two people, both of whom have been quite involved in the federal society. This is sort of a, a classic area which. Um, Splits, uh, uh, I think, splits uh, normal ideological affiliations in general, and certainly, to some degree, ours in, in particular. Uh, to, to open up in the debate, and, and, and to, uh, I'm not sure exactly how he will describe it, but to argue on 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 the congressional side of this congressional executive question, uh, will be Professor John Baker. Uh, from uh, he's the Dale Bennett Professor of Law at, L- at Louisiana State University. John has been involved with us for years. He's co-taught, among other things, a class on separation of powers with Justice Scalia for us on several occasions uh, and has been, has been a, a wonderful teacher, has, uh, teaches both criminal and constitutional law, and has written, has written very widely in the area uh, and is uh, uh, we, we're going to be delighted to have him. I'm also going to introduce, uh, be- before we start, Professor Turner and then call both of them up, uh, uh, professor Bob Turner uh, is a professor at University of Virginia, and he has been since 1981, I believe, the associate director and the co-founder of the Center for National Security Law, which has been an important center at the University of Virginia, which he is uh, co-founded with John Norton Moore. Um, uh, uh, professor Turner has enormous experience in the in the international uh, in, in, in national security law. Uh, he also had been 
done a number of things with the American Bar Association. He'd been on their committee on legislative exe- executive relations, and he was an assistant secretary of state for legislative affairs. Uh, so although his major expertise has been in, in foreign affairs area, he has had a lot of expertise in uh, the whole congressional legisl- uh, uh, executive battle and question about who has what powers. So with that and without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Professor Baker. One, one thing I forgot to mention, um, we're, everybody's going to have 10 to 12 minutes. Uh, I'm going to enforce the time limit strictly, and then there's going to be a couple minutes for brief response, and then there are going to be questions. So there's going to be a lot of Q&A, uh, so be, be thinking about your questions as we proceed. Sorry. Thank you. As Gene said, I come before you to argue that the uh, House and more generally the Congress as a whole has been the victim of an executive breach or violation of separation of powers. But, you know, I really feel like a lawyer whose client is a serial burglar who is now complaining that his client has been burglarized by the victim of most of his burglaries. Most violations of separation of powers come from the Congress. And, you know, in a way... It might seem that turnabout is fair play, right? But as a prosecutor on occasion, I had to respect the rule of law with regard to criminals. I don't mean just on procedure. I mean, I had cases where thieves would steal from thieves. And it's a crime, even, to steal from a thief. So what are we talking about when we address the question of the rule of law? Because that's the mantra that Bob and others have used in this case. Well, first of all, the rule of law means various things, but the most important level of the rule of law has to do with separation of powers. That's the guts of the structure of the Constitution. Without that, nothing means anything. The problem in this situation, and it is by design I'll talk about later, is that we have such overwhelming evidence, apparently, of guilt on the part of Mr. Jefferson, that people cannot separate the issues. We have two different issues. That is the question of the search of Jefferson's office and the intrusion into the House. And you say, well, how can you separate them? Well, Jefferson had his house searched a year ago, and nobody objected. Nobody objected. It's a different matter when his Office is searched because to get into that office, you're intruding into the House. The FBI said, we had no choice. Nonsense. Did they notify Hastert ahead of time? No. Did they even notify the president ahead of time? No. Either they're completely clueless about the uproar that was going to come about, or that was exactly what they wanted, because this is such a hard case that they could push the envelope in this case. And what's most important is the lead case that sets the precedent from which other things then occur. Vindicating the rule of law is something that is always in our Constitution subject to separation of powers. Prosecutions don't always occur 
even when somebody is guilty. And I'm not arguing that Jefferson should not be prosecuted. What I'm arguing is there are certain procedures that need to be gone through, and it need not occur this way. For instance, when we have national security cases, it's often the situation that justice and the CIA or the military may not want to go forward with the prosecution because they want to protect sensitive, sensitive material. In Morrison v. Olson, the independent counsel case, and I won't take the time to quote it, Justice Scalia made that very point in dissent, and that is the ultimate value is not prosecution. The ultimate value is separation of powers. Well, what about the courts? There are many instances, even with regard to Congress, where standing prevents the courts from getting at a violation of the Constitution by Congress. Congress has, in certain instances, blatantly violated the Constitution. Two of the cases from the 1970s involved war in the CIA. In the Richardson case, the question was whether Congress was violating the Constitution in failing to give a report on CIA expenses. It was pretty clear that Congress was violating it, but the court had to say there's no standing. Likewise, in Schlesinger versus Reserve Committee uh, to end the war, members of Congress, Barry Goldwater notably, were these were uh, members who were holding reserve commissions that made them an officer in the executive branch. Clearly violates the provision in the Constitution preventing members of the Congress from serving in the executive branch. Again, no standing. Bob Turner cites in one of his two articles, Federalist 57, and I must say, you know, Bob and I are disagreeing, but we agree on most things uh, regarding separation of powers. And in debating Bob, it's easier because, in fact, what we have is somebody who actually, on both sides, recognizes the Federalist as an authority for understanding separation of powers. In any event, in Federalist 57, Bob was pointing out that uh, Madison says that Congress can make no laws that don't apply to itself as well as it, they do to other people. That's true, but the question is, what's the remedy? As Bob pointed out in his testimony before Congress after 1994, there was a movement within Congress to make Congress subject to the discrimination laws, which they had not been subject to before. The point is that there was no mechanism outside the political mechanism to force Congress to actually adhere to the rule of law in terms of being treated like everyone else. In fact, what Madison goes on to say is, if it be asked, what is to restrain the House of Representatives from making legal discrimination in favor of themselves? and a particular class of society? And he answers, the genius of the whole system. And he goes on to say, well, what if that doesn't work? He says, well, if it doesn't work, then the American people are unable to tolerate liberty. Ultimately, with the Congress, many of the issues have to be resolved politically. Unfortunately, most lawyers are trained in ways that they think that separation of powers means that ultimately the judiciary has to answer the question. That's not what separation of powers in this country means at all. Bob, in the other article, quoted Federalist 47, 
That is the main article that introduces the four, article, uh, four essays on separation of powers, specifically in the Federalist. The whole uh, body of essays deals with separation of powers. 47 introduces the principle, but the principle was a matter of dispute as to how to apply it. The Federalists and the Anti-Federalists disagreed about this. And the Federalists in the Constitution adopt a form of separation of powers that is entirely new. And it begins with the observation in Federalist 48 that by nature the Congress is the strongest of the three branches. And therefore, for separation of powers to work, what is necessary is to give auxiliary precautions to the executive and the judiciary. So within the Constitution, the particular provisions that are added are designed to build those two branches up and to weaken the Congress. The founders didn't think that the Congress itself needed any protection. As people within the Beltway know, maybe not outside the Beltway, Congress still is the 800-pound gorilla. When Congress gets excited, as it did, then things can happen. And I am very glad the Congress got excited, although I'm not very hopeful that the Republicans will carry through on what I think they ought to carry through. But to understand what the situation is, how, how much time have I got? got five minutes. Five minutes. Let's try to separate this from Bill Jefferson, and I would pose the following to you. Imagine, if you will, the FBI shows up to the Supreme Court building with a search warrant to search the chambers of one of the justices. Imagine that Special Prosecutor Fitzgerald gets a search warrant issued for the search of Vice President Cheney's office. Now, unlike the Congress, you can't just walk into those two buildings with a great deal of freedom. You can't get in the White House. You can't get past the guard station unless you're on the list. You have ID and everything else. Supreme Court, you can get in, but you're greatly restricted. So put yourself in the position of the guard at one of those two places. You're not about to let them in with a search warrant. You're going to call higher up. Now, I don't know what the Chief Justice would say if he got a call asking whether the FBI should be allowed in to search so in a particular justice's office. But I have some idea what Vice President Cheney, with the support of President Bush, would say, and I think it would be expletive-deleted no. <laughs> and that's what it should be. Why? If you understand separation of powers, you will understand, as Cheney and, most importantly, his chief of staff, Addington, understand, is that ultimately some of the most important political questions, indeed the real political questions, ought not to be settled in the courts. We cannot count on the courts to properly tell those branches what their powers are. There's a difference between the individual and the branch and the branch itself. Much has been written about the fact that Vice President Cheney has been adamant about recovering the powers eroded from the presidency since the Watergate period. But Cheney started on this while he was a member of the Congress. And some people might think it odd that a member of the Congress be concerned about erosion of the powers of the president. 
And when his chief of staff, Addington, who had previously or recently been profiled as the wizard behind things in terms of pressing executive power, when he came out and supported Hastert in saying that the search violated separation of powers, apparently justice went ballistic and floated the idea that Gonzalez and Mueller might resign. Well, my view, the president should have accepted their resignations and appointed Addington Attorney General. Why? This Justice Department and Justice's Departments, as far back as you can see, do not understand separation of powers. And we have, not just under this president, a criminal division that routinely seeks activist judging when it comes to the expansion of criminal law, federal criminal law. The Federalists said you have nothing to fear from the judiciary as long as it is not united with one of the other branches. When it comes to criminal law, federal judges have been expanding substantive criminal law on the most aggressive arguments from the Justice Department, and the Justice Department gets slapped down occasionally, but that doesn't stop them. The Anderson case was a good example. We have the general principle in Lopez and Morrison, and the Congress and the Justice Department have basically ignored both of those things. The issue, as far as the founders were concerned, was liberty. And they said that no parchment barrier... No line could clearly be drawn between the different branches, and that Congress would routinely try to push, and that the only way there was to protect liberty was to give each of the branches the motivation, the tools, the ambition to protect each of the branches, and that it was in that protection that we would be protected. Finally, we are at a situation where maybe there is a confluence of forces that might deal with the fact that Congress and the, and the Just Justice Department and the judiciary have been federalizing criminal law, but now they can see what's happening. The day after Haster blew up at what Justice did, just coincidentally, Brian Ross for ABC came out with a special report that he was, in fact, Haster under investigation. Now Mr. Hastert understands the kind of tactics that justice routinely uses in high-profile cases. The Democrats now are getting upset. Rangel is upset that Milberg, the law firm, has been indicted. The Wall Street Journal welcomed Rangel into the group objecting to what justice is doing. Corporations have decried what happened to Anderson. They're decrying what's happening to the forced waiver of attorney-client privilege. In my view, what should happen is that the House should insist that those documents be returned. But the House has a responsibility on its own. It has the ability to discipline its own members. It should take the evidence, and if it warrants discipline the member, the evidence would then become revealed by the House itself. It would be in accord with separation of powers. The ultimate problem is that 
Lawyers don't understand that the principle in the Federalist is that Congress, as Madison said, is full of conflict of interest. Politics involves a great deal of political element. Politics does not function and ought not to function the way lawyers function in court. And as Judge John Noonan wrote in his famous book on bribes, the judiciary and the Justice Department since 1970 have been criminalizing politics. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here and to share a panel with John, who's a very distinguished uh, separation of power scholar. Uh, and there's a lot we agree upon. Indeed, much of his opening remarks, his comments about violations of separation of powers by the legislature, is something I could spend the rest of the day talking about. But let's get back to the case at hand. On June 13th of this year, the Library of Congress's Congressional Research Service issued a memorandum, a fairly long memo, that informed members, and I quote, there appears to be no legal support for an argument that the FBI seeking, obtaining, and executing a search warrant on Congressman Jefferson's office was a violation of any principle of law, constitutional or otherwise. That said it pretty well. Now, John quoted Federalist Number 47, so let me go back to that. James Madison, in one of the most important of the Federalist papers, certainly in terms of separation of powers, wrote, and I quote, the accumulation of all powers legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. Now, how strong is the case against William Jefferson? Well, according to press accounts, after videotaping him receiving $100,000 in marked bills, the FBI uh, obtained a search warrant, searched his house, and in the freezer found $90,000 of that marked money hidden away, wrapped up as if it were cold beef or something like that. In a separate case, a Kentucky businessman has already pleaded guilty to paying Jefferson $400,000 in bribes for official favors. And a key Jefferson staff aide has already entered a guilty plea to aiding and abetting the bribery of a public official. As John says, this is a pretty strong case. And based upon such compelling evidence, when Jefferson refused for eight months to comply with a subpoena to surrender key documents, and I would note here that his behavior was different than that of the of White House, Scooter Libby, Karl Rove, and others who also were demanded by a court to uh, present themselves and answer questions, they showed up. They obeyed the law. Jefferson for eight months refused to comply with the search warrant Oh, sorry, with the subpoena, so a federal judge, after looking at all the evidence, issued a search warrant that was executed on May 20th in his Capitol Hill office. Exceptional procedures were created to ensure that no privileged documents, no documents under the speech or debate clause, would be surrendered to investigators, with questionable calls all being determined by a federal judge. Specifically, the FBI agents who made, made up the search team who went into his office were not in, at all involved in the actual investigation or prosecution of the case. They collected two boxes of documents and also copied the hard drive of a laptop computer. 
Those documents were turned over to a filter team consisting of one Department of Justice lawyer, one justice from the office of the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia, and one FBI agent, none of whom were involved in the case. Their job was to remove from these two boxes and from that hard drive any documents they felt were protected by the speech or debate clause. If in doubt, documents were to be turned over to the court so a judge could make that neutral decision. Copies of all the documents that were kept after this process were then to be uh, turned over to the counsel for Congressman Jefferson. And no member of the prosecution team would have access to any document until a judge had ruled on those documents. And further, each of these documents would be subject to challenge during trial if there ultimately is a trial and prosecution. The speech or debate clause, which is the governing principle here, is found in Article 1, Section 6 of the Constitution, and it provides that members of Congress, I quote, shall in all cases accept treason, felony, and breach of the peace. And let me pause there to explain that breach of the peace was used in an earlier uh, term referring to a breach of the king's peace, or what today we call misdemeanor. So all criminal acts were not covered by this be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses and in going to and returning from the same, and this is a key part, and for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. Thus, that is a political question. That is one of those questions, if a member of Congress stands up and defames someone, stands up and delivers a blackmail message, what have you, no one, no court, no one can call that into question save for his fellow legislators. The speech or debate clause protects only legislative acts. The Supreme Court has held this time and again. It was never intended to immunize corrupt legislators who violated felony bribery statutes. And this point has been, point has been repeatedly confirmed by the Supreme Court. As the court explained in the 1972 Brewster case, quote, taking a bribe is obviously no part of the legislative process or function. It is not a legislative act. It is not by any conceivable interpretation an act performed as a part of or even incidental to the role of a legislature. It is therefore not protected by the Constitution. Summarizing the 1966 Johnson case, the Brewster court said, Johnson stands as a unanimous holding that a member of Congress may be prosecuted under a criminal statute provided the government case does not rely on legislative acts or the motivation for legislative acts. In the 1979 case of Hutchinson v. Proxmire, the court affirmed the point it made earlier in Brewster that the purpose of the speech or debate clause was, quote, to protect the integrity of the legislative process and added, quote, the shield does not extend beyond what is necessary to preserve the integrity of the legislative process. The idea that this ought to be carried further to, to, to cover bribery uh, is, 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 is it's asinine. It makes no sense at all. The Brewster Court noted that legislators engage in a variety of political activities, such as legitimate errands performed for constituents, the making of appointments with government agencies, assistance in securing government contracts, and the like. And since these are political rather than legislative acts, they are not protected by the speech or debate clause. Now, once again, Representative William Jefferson of Louisiana is accused of taking $400,000 from a Kentucky corporation in return for a promise to pressure African governments to do business with this company. This is not even arguably speech or debate or legitimate legislative activity. 
Now let's consider for a moment, we're talking about separation of powers and the idea that all power should not be concentrated in any one department or branch. Let's look at the procedures that would be followed through the traditional law enforcement paradigm as modified by these exceptional protections to make sure no speech or debate uh, material is is viewed by prosecutors uh, versus having the House of Representatives police itself. The Constitution empowers Congress to make the laws and entrust the the task of seeing those laws faithfully executed in the executive branch. Before the FBI can obtain a criminal search warrant, it must persuade a federal judge who is appointed by life for, uh, for life by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate to safeguard judicial independence that there is probable cause both to believe that a, pri- that a crime has been committed and that evidence of that crime, of crime will be disclosed by the search. The application must include a particular description of the place to be searched and the property to be seized. And in this case, the application for a warrant was accompanied by an 83-page detailed affidavit. Before a defendant can be tried, a grand jury must bring an indictment. Every piece of evidence a prosecutor subsequently wishes to bring into court is subject to being challenged and will be excluded if the judge finds it was unreasonably seized, it's outside the scope of a lawful warrant, or the seizure violates another provision of the Constitution, such as the speech or debate clause or federal law. Twelve jurors, private citizens, must then agree unanimously that every element of the offense has been proven beyond reasonable doubt. Now that is separation of powers. If the defendant believes the trial judge erred in admitting evidence, he may appeal his conviction to a court of appeals. And from there, he has a shot at the Supreme Court. This is an incredibly elaborate process uh, in which all three branches are involved. Got it. House Resolution 722 of 1980 established a policy that compliance with properly issued subpoenas should be the ultimate goal. When material on the Hill is subpoenaed, the goal is let's promote justice. If it's a good subpoena, let's go. But some say the House is the final judge of whether a document is privileged, and that really is the key here. Counsel for the House of Representatives has said that Jefferson himself should be able to first go through all the documents and remove any that he thinks are privileged. Now, I know he's an honorable man. We know enough about him to know he would never do anything dishonest, but allowing him to be the judge of what documents can be seen by the prosecution. I guess I'm a cynic. I've been in Washington too long, but it it troubles me. Chief Justice John Marshall told us in Marbury versus Madison, and I quote, it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. And that includes interpreting the scope of the speech or debate clause, and that has been done repeatedly. There's no big debate here. We know what it means, and it does not mean congressmen get to engage in bribery and nobody gets to look over their shoulders. The Justice Department approach in this case leads to the judiciary, a subject to appeal all the way to the Supreme Court to decide what documents can be seen. Certainly, this is a far fairer policy uh, approach than allowing the congressman his staff, his friends, to make the decision on what documents can be seen. The purpose of the speech or debate clause was to protect the integrity of the legislative process. In 1774, in his summary views of the rights of British America, my my old friend Thomas Jefferson wrote, the whole art of government consists in the art of being honest. In the Brewster case, the Supreme Court noted that bribery, and I quote, perhaps even more than executive power, 
would gravely undermine legislative integrity and defeat the right of the public to honest representation. About a month ago, a Gallup poll revealed that public approval of Congress was at its lowest level since the Democrats were last in power a dozen years ago. Americans disapproving of Congress outnumbered those who approved by a margin of greater than three to one, and according to the Gallup poll, 83% of the American people viewed congressional corruption as a serious issue. So long as Congress continues to try to prevent the FBI from doing its job and enforcing the law against crooks on Capitol Hill, that figure is not likely to go down. Thank you. Your two-minute rebuttal. Well, in all fairness, Bob didn't know ahead of time what I was going to say. I knew what he was going to say. I had read both of his articles, and pretty much he said what is in his articles. Nevertheless, we're not connecting. That is, I'm talking about issues of separation of powers institutionally. I'm not representing Jefferson. In our country, institutional and personal connections occur when somebody holds office. But the kind of rule of law argument that I'm hearing from Bob is the same kind of mantra we heard post-Watergate. Nobody's above the law. Yeah. But the question is, how under the Constitution does one proceed? You know, at the time, public pressure was such that when Morrison v. Olson came to the Supreme Court, only Justice Scalia dissented, and people wondered how, you know, how could you be against such a good thing? Well, some years later, when Democrats realized that it could be used against them as well as Republicans, everyone wanted to know, well, how did Justice Scalia really understand how things would work out? Well, it's called understanding separation of powers. And although Bob cites some of the Federalist Papers, I submit that because his friend is Jefferson, he doesn't understand separation of powers. Jefferson had one view of separation of powers that is rejected in the Constitution. That's what Marbury was all about. The problem is we swung. Nobody adheres to Jefferson's view anymore. It swung from the supremacy or the complete separation. Jefferson had the view that Marshall could say what he wanted to say, but but the president didn't have any duty to adhere to it. We rejected that view. Marbury and Federalist 78 have the same view, but it's not judicial supremacy. It doesn't abdicate the powers of each of the branches separately. It's a very intricate system. But I've spent a lot of time on the speech and debate clause. I didn't spend any time on the speech and debate clause. Speech and debate has nothing to do with this case institutionally. And if I were Jefferson's lawyer, I wouldn't be arguing the speech and debate clause. If anything, for reasons that I won't have time to explain, but I'll have to answer in afterwards, I would f focus on the language before that about arrest and felony. But that's off to the side. Separation of powers is about structure. Structure. Bob made some uh, critical remarks about the House counsel and what he said. The House counsel's arguments were not without basis. The House has its own rules, and Rule 8, which doesn't deal with search and seizure because nobody thought that anybody would ever search in, in either of the House, but it does deal with the issue of subpoenas. Bob said it's outrageous for a member of Congress to himself determine these issues, but there's a provision on subpoenas for the member 
to determine these issues after giving notice to the Speaker, who gives notice to the members of the House and allows them to disagree with the determination before the matter goes to a court. Indeed, the member is to determine whether the court has jurisdiction. So it's not as bizarre as Bob seems to suggest. Thank you very much. We have been passing in the night to a degree because, and it's funny, he, he has not made the arguments that some have made suggesting that there is some special debate issue here, and, and I think everybody agrees there's not. Uh, he suggested that the Justice Department should have notified the leaders of Congress. But of course, none of them would have possibly passed on a hint to Jefferson, you may get that stuff out of your office. Now, if we follow his idea that Jefferson can decide what the Constitution means or that the, the, the Congress itself can make that binding determination, what we're saying is anyone in Congress who's not totally honorable can let his office be used as a hiding place for any criminal he wants to. Imagine, you give me $100,000 uh, and you can bring the murder weapon in here, we'll put it in my desk and nobody can ever touch it. This is not the rule of law. This is not separation of powers. In separation of powers, you put certain powers with different branches and they check each other. And our system is the Congress makes the law. And I think Congress probably could have said this law doesn't apply to us when they passed a bribery statute, a government bribery statute, more than 150 years ago. But they didn't. They included Congress in that, and it has been enforced time and time again against crooked congressmen. And who under the Constitution is charged with seeing the laws faithfully executed? It's not Congress. It's not the leader of Congress. It's the executive branch. It's the president and the executive branch. And how does he get a warrant when he wants to go into somebody's property and seize something? He goes to the court under the Fourth Amendment. And that's exactly what the president or what the FBI did in this case. I talked to Buck Ravel, who used to head the counterterrorism section of the FBI some years back and oversaw the Avscam investigation. And he said, you know, we didn't have any reason to believe they had any documents that we wanted. But had we believed that, we would not have hesitated to seek a subpoena. And I would not have told the White House. I would have certainly told the attorney general but this is not a political event. The president has no role in this. This is enforcing the crimes, the criminal laws passed by Congress. Uh, this idea, you know, in the British system, parliament is the supreme entity. Our system, Congress, is a co-equal branch. Many of the precedents from Great Britain simply do not apply to this country. It is true. You cannot serve a warrant on, uh, on, on a parliamentarian, and you can't search his office in Great Britain. That's not our system. In our system, members of Congress are supposed to be servants of the people. They're supposed to obey the law. When they disobey the law, they're subject to the same criminal laws uh, that apply to us, except to the extent they have decided to exempt themselves. They haven't done this. We have judicial chambers that have been searched. We have lawyers' offices that have been searched. The lawyer-client privilege is an absolute privilege. So what do they do? They set up an extraordinary system so that some people collect the documents, others review them, and once a decision has been made, there's no lawyer-client privilege material here. That is then turned over. The same kind of thing they've done here. Time is up, I'm told. Uh, you know, again, this is a fundamental issue. Do we have a supreme legislature? A lot of the laws that we've been talking about, the War Powers Resolution, FISA, 
are laws Congress passed in violation of the Constitution because Congress got the idea they were above the laws, they were the ultimate sovereign in this country. We need to dissuade them of that issue. One way to do that is when they grossly violate our criminal laws to hold them accountable. Thank you. We will uh, be op- opening th- – thanks to both of you. Uh, we, we will be opening up to questions. One of our staff members has a mic. I will start out by asking uh, both of them one question and then turn it op- over over to you. Um, uh, for Professor Baker, I, I think a lot of the discussion, as Professor Turner says, is has been on 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 a di- on a di- on a somewhat different ground. A lot of the pub- a lot of the public discussion. And I guess I would ask Professor Baker what his reaction is to the public discussion in the sense that does he think there's justific- does he think there's there's justification for Congress's objections on the grounds on which they actually seem to be publicly objecting as opposed to on the grounds he's giving? Um, and I'll let him answer that. I, I don't think there's any ground on the speech and debate clause because. The the few provisions in the Constitution protecting members of Congress are members of Congress as opposed to the institution of Congress. It's quite possible that you could be out of sync with the majority in Congress or the executive and nobody would want to protect you. So those are really protections of individuals. It's institutionally. The framers didn't think Congress needed any protection. The problem was the other two branches needed protection from Congress. But it is clear from the Federalist Papers that many of the things that have occurred in the last since basically Watergate um, and in the Nixon case in particular, that the court has, has gone into areas well beyond what Marshall said. Marshall drew a clear line in Marbury between those matters which were mandatory with no discretion and those matters which were political and had discretion. U.S. versus Nixon changes that. And then when we get to Morrison v. Olson, the whole deck is scrambled. We've simply failed to understand the system of separation of powers as the framers did it. And that's why Justice Scalia and I teach this course, to try to get people to understand what they're not being told. Bob, for all of his, his concern here, he and I agree about Congress usually intruding on the executive, and I am for a strong executive. But some of the things that are being brought into court simply have no business there. And it is perfectly legitimate for Congress as an institution to fight back. The problem is that the Republicans haven't got the guts to do it. And they're going to cave on this one. I've been talking to somebody up there in terms of what they're going to do. And their whole you know, they're going to try to work out procedures to allow this. But what people don't understand, Bob says bribery for 150 years. The definition of bribery has changed drastically in the last 50 years, and it covers all kinds of things. If you litigate criminal cases like I do, you know that the Justice Department, I'm representing one case in the Fifth Circuit right now, they're trying to turn into felony mail fraud crimes any violation by a politician of state ethics and campaign finance laws. If this precedent goes through, and I lose this case in the Fifth Circuit, any member of Congress would be subject to a search warrant 
to look for anything having to do with campaign finance. This is, a, by the way, this is a structural uh, argument about the text of, about the constitutional world, not. You're that's not right. arguing a specific textual point. So if that's the whole point. No, no, I, I understand. I just, I just wanted to try to clarify mm-hmm. that because I think for some people saying, well, what phrase of the Constitution that's is being right. violated? Right. And, th- and that's yeah. what lawyers think is you have to find a phrase. You don't. It's the structure. Um, my, my question for Bob and also both of you obviously feel free to comment on the other's answers. My, my question, though, in the realm of what, uh, what you were saying is, what do you do if you have a situation where you have a very strong, energetic executive with a president, you know, maybe, um, you know, let's say, just for pick a random choice, uh, Giuliani, uh, and there's a judge in D.C. who is very, very sympathetic to him and to his views, and you get uh, members of Congress who are just simply not cooperating in what's in the national interest. And th- this this hypothetical President Giuliani says, "Look, you know, this is really important. Goes to the people, but uh, argues for it. But also goes to the judge and says, look, you know, this guy. I mean, we have a lot of these campaign finance laws. He got some of his people to research some things. Gets something that seems superficially plausible. That there was some kind of violation, and uh, starts subpoenaing things in that congressman's office and makes it clear that anybody who crosses me, this is what's going to happen." Yo, there obviously is a potential for abuse. What I'm arguing is this is not that case. This is not a case where poor Mr. Jefferson is being dragged off to the Tower of London as a means of intimidating other members of Congress who might be taking $100,000 or $400,000 from, uh, you know, companies in other states to, to, to pressure uh, African leaders to, to give them money. I mean, this is, this is silliness. It, what are the checks in our system if you did get a a rogue judge who decided to work with a rogue president, well, first of all, you appeal, and you go up to the Court of Appeals, and you go up to the Supreme Court. And if they are also taken over by rogue, unprincipled judges, then Congress still has the impeachment power. Ultimate authority in this country resides with the American people. We are the sovereign authority in this country. Back when a lot of these rules developed, the idea was that sovereignty goes straight from God to the Pope to the kings and princes, uh, and then, of course, the Church of England broke away, but the king still remained the, 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 the depository of sovereign authority. Uh, we don't have that here. And if we find, and we've got a, journal, a, a, a press that, that is alert to this kind of abuse and that will report it, we then go out and vote some different people into power after four years. It may not be perfect, but the alternative, and I, I may be misreading him, but I'm getting a sense that, that, that John is saying, Members of Congress need to be above the law, or at least they should be able to hide evidence of their guilt in their offices. Uh, you know, I worked on the Hill for five years. I watched the system work. And, and I know that members of Congress, like most people, tend to pursue their own perceived self-interest. If you are a congressional leader and you find out the FBI is going to come in here and start digging around, an awful lot of people are going to want to know why you didn't tip off your friend. Uh, you know, if you won't protect him, you won't protect me. And you're going to lose a lot of points. Uh, Congress does, you know, the reason Congress does not uh, you know, police its own members is because of the inherently corrupt system they would have to operate with. Now, think about it. Congress is uh, accuser, investigator, judge, juror, uh, appeals court, uh, everything. Now, who is Congress made of? 
Congress is made up mostly of people that either like or dislike the defendant. Almost all of them know each other. Many of them have very strong feelings, feelings to the point that if they were a juror, they would be uh, 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 tossed off the jury. If they were a judge, they would have to recuse as a matter of fundamental ethics. Uh, the Republicans know that they're not always going to be in the majority. And they've learned, they watch what happened to Newt Gingrich after he went after Jim Wright. Uh, and they know that when the majority is in power, it can do anything it wants to the minority. And so they don't really like this system where they have to play judge, jury, and so forth. The, our, the, the, the way our system works, Congress makes the laws, the president executes the laws, the judiciary approves warrants, so, so, you know, does its job. That's what is going on in this case. There are some narrow exceptions where you cannot interfere. One of them is if the law is broken by the act of giving a speech or writing a report uh, or taking part in debate in Congress. Literally, I could, as a member of Congress, stand up and say, if Mrs. Jones over on Fifth Street does not give $5 million to my colleague who's outside her house, her husband is going, who's been kidnapped is going to be killed. None of that is admissible in court for any purpose. And that's a problem. That's a big negative. But it's a lesser negative than the idea that you get up there and say George Bush is a crook, and the next thing you know you're dragged off to the Tower of London. That kind of abuse is protected. It's not happening. This is a case of a crook, a repeated crook, uh, trying to evade uh, accountability, as Jefferson, I mean, as, as Madison mentioned in Federalist 57, Congress wasn't supposed to be allowed to make any law that would not apply equally upon themselves and their friends. By this new interpretation, okay, the law applies to them, but as long as they're smart enough to hide the evidence in their offices, you can't touch them. Look, there's nothing in what I said that stops a prosecutor from from prosecuting Jefferson. If they hadn't searched the place. They had an 83-page affidavit, right? They make it public. Lawyers don't understand that this can be a political process. Lawyers have been told in law school that politics is somehow corrupt. All the good things happen in the courts. I'm telling you, as the Federalist is telling you, that you can't go there on these kinds of things. What you have to do is go to the political process. There would be a fight between the executive and the Congress over the public debate of this evidence. And ultimately, it would be a political showdown. It would be a test of wills. That's the way it's supposed to work. It is not necessarily supposed to be resolved by a court when it's an institutional issue. One way or another, Jefferson, if the evidence is there, would be forced out of the Congress and he would be indicted. Even without being forced out of the Congress, he can be indicted. The evidence is going to come out. Justice wants to do it its way, the way it thinks is the only way to do it, through the courts. I'm telling you that that is not the framers' view of our Constitution. Let's throw it open to questions. Judge Braden, and somebody has a microphone. Yeah. <coughs> We're also taping, so it's useful to have Mr. Baker, I was confused um, about your statements about notice. If I understand your argument, notice is not the relevant issue. It didn't make any difference what they called Hazard or Geraldine Jeanette or whatever I, I it was. was. I was simply responding to the Am I correct on that? It was a response to the Justice Department saying they had no choice 
when he didn't respond to the subpoena. What I was just giving you, there are other choices. There are other choices. Simply as a matter of of of, of <laughs> political sense, either they were totally clueless, which I don't believe. I believe rather they figured this is the ideal case to push us beyond where we've gone, because because of the bad facts, people like Bob are going to be so taken with Jefferson that they ignore the institutional issue. It's the same thing that happened with the independent counsel case. People are taken with the facts of a particular case, and justice gets to choose the case in which it makes the issue. They wouldn't have done this on weak facts. But that there are two separate issues. There's the institutional issue, and there's an issue with Jefferson. It may be more difficult to get ultimately to Jefferson, but he can be gotten to. Justice can indict him. They can try him if they have the evidence. Nobody objected to the search of his house. It's only when they come in and they say, they say, if you don't open up that door, we're going to pick it with a lock. If I were in the house, I would go back with rules that make sure that when the FBI comes in, like everybody else, they're disarmed. Okay? They go inside. The Capitol Police respond to the Congress. They don't respond to the executive branch. This guy says he wants to break into that office. I, if I were Capitol Police, under the instruction of the Speaker, I would stop him from breaking into that office. And then it would be a political fight. That's the point. Let's look at this politically. Uh, I'm, I've been around Washington a long time, and I understand, and indeed one reason that we probably have never had this incident before is because Presidents look at these things, and presidents tend to be politicians, and they say, gee, i got a crook over here, but he's of the other party, and if I go get him, that's going to make his friends unhappy, and I'm going to need to get votes uh, you know, to pass my water bill next month, so we're going to let him slide. We're going to have an, sort of an unofficial rule that congressmen are above the law. When, when young Mr. Kennedy was stopped the other day, one of the senior officials said, oh, take him home. Why, that's politics, that's business as usual. That's a rule that says, hey, uh, uh, let's not offend powerful people. Uh, you know, we'll find somebody else we can throw in jail. And I'm saying if we believe in the rule of law, and, and, and if the Supreme Court is right when it says that bribery can be as big a threat to the independence of Congress as executive intimidation, then we ought to uphold the law. And no one ought to be above the law. It is true that for certain official acts, people are above the law, and then they should be. Uh, we don't want the president to have to go out and te testify as a witness in every little lawsuit in town because somebody doesn't like him and wants to use up his time. But, but, but it is a general principle. Those exceptions, speech or debate is a classic, they're set there. They're enforced. And they're already, you know, speech or debate is already extended far broader than just speech or debate. But it does not include a crook dealing with people in other states and foreign countries trying to hide evidence in his office. Now, if... Congress were to win this fight. Some of these clowns that are up there to make money presumably are going to be hiring themselves out to Al-Qaeda and say, hey, I'll hold the WND in my office till you need it because they can't get it. Now, I may be wrong. Maybe they're more principled than I know, but over the, over the years I've dealt with an awful lot of people up there that I thought would probably sell their mothers for the right dollar. Uh, and if we want the system to work, we have to say, you 
are accountable to violations of the law. If you commit speeding, drunk driving, we are going to arrest you and you're going to be treated the same way any other citizen would be treated because ultimately you are a servant of the American people. You are not our king. You are there serving us and you are no more above the law than we are. That, to me, is, is the core issue here. I don't disagree. I think the special, the special prosecutor was unconstitutional, independent counsel. I thought Scalia's uh, sole dissent in Morrison v. Olson was absolutely brilliant. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, but, but the idea that you go from there to saying you cannot serve a search warrant without the approval of the leadership of Congress and without giving advantage. The Congress wants to have to give advance notice to Jefferson and let him decide what's privileged. And, and that somehow strikes me as being kind of silly if you want to enforce your laws. But uh, this is one of those issues we can all disagree upon or agree or disagree upon, and I have the greatest respect for John. Other questions? Yes. Yeah, yes, I should, I, should, I should try to not swing this back and forth, <laughs> but yes. The, um, do, uh, the first thing is a real question. Do we know that uh, the congressman was contesting the subpoena uh, first with Judge Hogan, then he was appealing it and, because he could go up to the Supreme Court? And that's why they then jumped to a search warrant idea. So what do we know about that? And then the other question is, why is your issue not with Judge Hogan? Uh, who issued the search warrant. Clearly, there are lots of lines that haven't been drawn in this, but uh, it was Judge Hogan, it was the judiciary that got themselves involved and felt that they had the authority to issue a, a search warrant. Uh, as to the first, I assume they did not go up, and, uh, you know, why they didn't go up and challenge it, I don't know. Um, as to the second, I agree with you. But as I made the point, it's it's the unity, the cooperation between the Justice Department and judges that's getting us into this situation, both with regard to the Congress and actually the executive, which would seem odd because of, of justice. But the reality is, again, as Judge Noonan said in his book on bribes, uh, the Justice Department Criminal Division operates almost independently of the administration. And, you know, one of the biggest intrusions of Congress and separation of powers has been taking the removal of power away from the president over appointees to executive agencies. There is this notion in this country that what we really need are independent people, independent of politics. Madison addressed that in Federalist 10 and said, look, you can't get independent people. Who's going to judge the independent people? Separation of powers is the solution because we can't get independent people. Lawyers are educated to love judges, to believe that they're independent, to believe that they're out of politics. It is this mentality of independence that was brought in by the progressive movement which hated separation of powers. We're, we need to understand separation of powers. And when Justice Scalia talks about leaving things to the political arena, people say, well, how can you do that? Well, that's what self-government's about. I guess I'm still lost on this. Uh, I, again, I agree that, that uh, the president ought to be able to remove people in the executive branch. Uh, I, I'm a fan of, uh, of the United States versus Myers. I'm, a, you know, uh, this is to be. This was a debate in 1789 
when, uh, when Madison introduced the bill to set up the Department of Foreign Affairs and the question came, who can remove the secretary? And some said the Senate has a role in that. And Madison said, no, they don't. The executive power is given to the president. That includes the power to remove executive officials. The Senate is only linked to the appointment part of that and thus is not involved in removal. And a majority of House and a majority of the Senate uh, accepted that view. But we're talking about separation of powers. You know, I'm arguing Congress gets to make the laws. And if they want to exclude themselves, they can do so. Hopefully some of us will point that out in the next election. We'll get some new congressmen because Congress ought not be above the law. But Congress in this case has made itself subject to the law, and the law has been applied to Congress time and again with no response. Congress didn't follow these convictions by uh, rewriting the laws. Okay, the executive is charged with seeing the laws faithfully executed. I like the idea that the criminal division is not folding home to, to Karl Rove to find out who to prosecute. I, I, I think they ought to be independent of political pressure to the extent possible. Uh, and, and many roles are set aside for the court. You cannot search somebody's home or office without getting a warrant from a judge. So you've got all three branches at play here. Coming up, you've got Congress making the rules, the executive investigating, the court approving warrants and so forth, ultimately a trial where you and I can sit in the juror and we have to unanimously agree that every element has been proven beyond reasonable doubt. This is a good, fair system that has worked well. The alternative is to say, no, for political reasons, we don't want anybody bothering members of Congress. And, and for, for, on a political basis, that is exactly true. Why on earth alienate members of the opposition party? And even more so, why alienate members of your own party by when they speed, when they rape, when they pillage, what have you? But that's not our system. Our system is no one is above the law. And the question is, which is better? Either say, oh, well, if you want to investigate it, you've got to tell mommy first so she can tell the kids to clean up their rooms. Or is it better to say, look, we have evidence here. A, a judge determines whether the, the evidence is sufficient to establish probable cause. If the judge says you do, then you go, uh, as you would in any other case. Uh, you know, but you do have special checks. Again, we've had invasion of judicial chambers to search. We've had invasion of lawyers' offices where you have the attorney-client privilege sacrosanct. How do we get around it? We set up teams to review the evidence to make sure that nothing privileged goes in the hands of the prosecutors. That's here. They've done it extremely well. We ought to be very grateful to them, and we ought to be particularly grateful that we've got an FBI director and an attorney general who are not afraid of, of offending Congress in their pursuit of justice. I, to me, this is a very simple matter. Professor Baker, I was just wondering, the reference was just made to the prior searches of judicial chambers, and I'm just wondering how you're, if the separation of powers analysis is at all relevant um, or guides your outlook on that. Well, two things. Um, lower courts are creatures of Congress, and that's why I use the example, what would you think about the Supreme Court? I'm talking about three equal branches. That's why I use Congress, the court, and, and the executive. I think the lower federal courts have made a number of mistakes regarding their own vulnerability. And I would focus most of all on the notion that federal judges have been indicted. I think it is absolutely wrong that federal judges, no matter how guilty, can be indicted before being removed by impeachment. If you read the text, 
it's pretty clear against the background of the Federalist that impeachment is, first of all, a political offense that is appropriately tried, says the Federalist, only by the political branches. The reality in this country, and it was started by Nixon with the indictment of Kerner in the Seventh Circuit, is that we bypassed that, and Nixon also threw Agnew to the wolves on that. And the implication became, with the independent counsel case, that you could indict the president. I don't know how he would govern from jail, which would be an interesting question. The problem in our government is that, yes, no one is above the law, but the procedure of how you separate the person from the office is critical. Members of Congress are not subject to impeachment. Only officers are. That includes the executive and the judiciary. It is my view that no federal judge should be indicted before being first removed by Congress. Congress has that responsibility. Of course, once they're indicted and convicted, it becomes routine. It's just a formalism that the federal judge is removed. Congress doesn't want to take its responsibility seriously and do what it wants, what it should do. It would like to, it's happy to have the Justice Department just do this. What's happening to Congress is that the Republican Congress in particular, which has lived off the law and order issue from the 1970s, which says it's against judicial activism, has been for judicial activism as long as it expands the power of prosecutors and courts. Now it's coming back to bite them, and they're in a position that they feel they can't do anything about it. The danger that the founders never saw was that we could actually create independent branches of government within the government, that the president wouldn't really have complete control over the executive branch, that we would have a Congress that doesn't know how to exercise power at times in its own interest. How did that happen? A lot of it has to do with the law schools and the fact that lawyers are running everything and that lawyers don't know. I mean, Bob, for all of his concern about the executive branch, ultimately is a judicial supremacist, that a lot of these things have to simply be resolved by the judiciary, nonpartisan, nonpolitical. What makes you think the judges, even federal judges, have a nonpolitical view, not on partisanship, but again, on Federalist 51, and as Justice Scalia says, hey, I'm federal. This is my, he says this in quotes, each branch is to protect its own power. That's our protection. When they get in fights and they check each other, they protect us. Our problem is that we've got the executive branch and, until this instance, the congressional branch and the judiciary expanding the police powers of the federal government, which has, as Lopez and Morrison say, no general police power. We have a separation of powers requirement that Congress pass laws, that we have no common law of crimes. Congress is passing vague laws, and federal judges are expanding these laws at the behest of federal prosecutors. We have taken since 1970, most of the, about half of the federal criminal laws have been passed since 1970. We have overlapped everything pretty much in the states. The federal prosecutorial arm is taking over. It has way too much power, thanks to Congress.
there has to be a check on that power. I have no doubt that the men and women of the Justice Department are fine individuals who have the best of intentions, who are acting in good faith. I also believe that very few of them understand separation of powers. I also believe that they have this notion of independence, that they are apolitical. But politics is not just partisan. The idea that we are going to prosecute everything ignores the statement of Scalia in the Morrison v. Olson case that ultimately decisions about prosecution are ultimately political and they have to go back to the people. That's the only check. And I just hope Congress, now having been bitten by this, will wake up and realize that it is about time to check the criminal division. I would totally agree that, that Congress has expanded federal power uh, far too much. Uh, a lot of things he says I agree with. I'm not a judicial supremacist. I believe the people are supreme. And I believe we set up a constitution that, that divides powers, that separates powers among branches, and that doesn't set any branch aside or above the law. And so it's, it's a system that says Congress sets the rules, makes the laws, the executive executes the laws. That's what's happening here. The FBI is investigating this. Uh, it's true there is a political overlay to this, and the president could have said, wait a minute, uh, Mr. Attorney General, before you do anything that affects a member of Congress or any of these 35 names that are my close friends, you will tell me first because I will exercise prosecutorial discretion. And instead, we instead say, no, I don't want to get involved in law enforcement. I want it to be honest. I want honorable people to go out and try to find who's breaking the law. Uh, you know, the impeachment power is important. If a member of Congress, you know, it's possible to totally betray his office without violating a criminal law. Uh, he might just decide to find everybody innocent or something like that. And this, to my knowledge, there's no law that makes that a crime. But it might well be an impeachable offense. Uh, but the idea that you can only touch members of Congress by impeachment or judges by impeachment, if they're out there flagrantly violating the criminal laws, it strikes me that the principle we all keep saying, no one is above the law, is an important one. There are all sorts of checks here. And if you did really have, if this were like dragging off a popular parliamentarian to the Tower of London to intimidate the others, as has been suggested more than once, Congress has all sorts of weapons it can use. The president has all sorts of weapons he can use, including, at will, terminating the position of the attorney general or the FBI director. These people are not unchecked. But in this case, this is, appears to be an overwhelming case of egregious criminal behavior that does corrupt the system. And I think they're doing it exactly right. And I think the FBI deserves tremendous praise for having set up this very elaborate system to make certain that no prosecutor sees a single document that Jefferson challenges that has not been approved by a court. And again, those documents can be appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court if they're used in trial. So this is not like there's some, you know, I'm arguing for separation of powers. I'm arguing for involving all three branches. As I understand, you know, you're saying no Congress should basically judge itself and, and the executive ought not uh, harass them because that's uh, not good politics. I'm probably being unfair to you, but it, uh, that side I understand, and it has been used and throughout much of our history. Uh, members of Congress got a pass when they got arrested for drunk driving or whatever. The idea was take them home because we're going to need appropriations from them next year. But that's not what our system is supposed to be about. I, I don't think you've understood my distinction between the person and the institution. 
and that's critical. And, okay. you, you know, that's why we're not connected. Um, I, I have one, one question uh, in terms of Professor Baker, in terms of uh, the, the, the question about uh, your suggestion was what, what, what about Congress passing a specific law to say, you know, exactly how this sort of thing should be treated. And I thought it might be helpful for you to respond to that. I, I think I know what your answer is, but let me ask you. specific law to deal with, I'm not uh, sure. Uh, why doesn't Congress just pass – he said, why doesn't Congress just pass a law saying how you would uh, – say, hang on, what circumstances you can search somebody's office or not search somebody's office? If I were in Congress, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give them any power to search at all. Where does the power of the FBI come from? Legislation. Who controls that legislation? Congress. If I were in Congress, I wouldn't give the FBI any power to come into that building with a gun and a warrant. I wouldn't. Yeah, but how, how does how – does, I, I think I'm – well, I'm saying I think you know what I'm How does – why is Congress – there is no – what is the law that – you know, there is a law against bribery. Where is – and I think you already indicated it's not explicitly excluded – no, there's no reason why Jefferson can't be prosecuted for bribery. What What is the reason why his office can't be searched? And that's you know, I mean, I know you you know, I mean, spell out the separation. It's of an office within the house. And where is the house protected from any kind of? It's the Congress. The three branches are yes. equal. Neither one of them is to invade the other. Marshall made this very clear that the judiciary didn't have power to invade the political sphere of the presidency, but it was different as to Madison acting in a mandatory way where he had no political discretion. I am not saying the FBI cannot search Jefferson's home. They can, they did. I am not saying they cannot indict him. The evidence is as it is, they should indict him. Okay? I'm not saying any of that. I'm not defending Jefferson at all. All I am saying is that on intrusion into the House with a search warrant, they overstepped separation of powers. That's my only point. Now, if this had been just a general warrant and they went office to office seeing what they could find to, to, to uh, implicate someone, I would agree totally. But this was a warrant, again, after eight months of trying to subpoena the documents and being ignored a warrant that expressly said what they were after. They brought out two boxes of documents. You know, most congressional offices have, what, 500? I don't know. You know, it's been 30 years since I left the Senate almost, but we used to have lots more than two boxes. This is a good-faith effort going after specific evidence of specific criminal activity under the supervision of a judge. But Bob, uh, it is true Congress could exempt itself. In fact, the CRS memo that said they haven't violated the law, but Congress may want to pass a rule saying they can't come in here. And the answer to that is you and I as electors are going to want our members of Congress not to be above the law, and I think we're going to turn out the crew that votes to make Congress above the law. That's, that's my guess of what they fear, that if they pass a law saying you can't touch us, uh, you know, if, if we get caught drunk driving, you have to give us an escort home. The rest of us are going to learn about that through the newspapers. I'm going to send, send you guys to, to Washington, but I, I may be wrong. Bob, you said that, that if the FBI had notified Hastert, there'd be a problem because Hastert might notify Jefferson. Pelosi. But, but, or, 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 yeah, either but way. you've just now said that on the subpoena, they identified everything they wanted. Jefferson was already on notice as to what they were after. 
And why didn't the FBI take it up through the courts? Because then it would have been public. It would have been a debate about it before they came in and caught the Capitol Police by saying, you know, we're going to pick the lock if you don't let us in. We would have had a public debate about this ahead of time, and Jefferson was on notice. The justice knew about it. Jefferson knew about it. The rest of us didn't know about it. We didn't get to have the political debate until it was framed in the way the FBI wanted it framed. But as soon as and the problem with your the your problem with your argument is you're taking bad facts, and you 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 pose the opposite as random searches in the different offices. That's not it. Because of the federalization of crime, it means that the next search can be for a relatively trivial thing. And you know, Bob, that it doesn't take much to get probable cause when you have very broad and loose statutes to begin with. There isn't going to be an office up there. Look, the Wall Street Journal has said it. Any good prosecutor knows it, and especially true under federal criminal law. If I focus long enough on somebody, I could probably indict them for something. And before the indictment, what you're doing is gathering evidence, and you only need probable cause, and that's all you need for a warrant. Yeah, I look at it a different way. I, look, I agree with you. I think Congress has passed some very sloppy laws that can be stretched. And I think the sooner we stretch those to inconvenience Congress, the sooner they're going to understand, hey, maybe this isn't such a good idea. That's my point. I, I sat, yeah, but the way to do that is to let them get investigated and say, oh, oops, they can get me next time. We'd better tighten up these laws. I, I watched Congress in, uh, I think it was about 76, pass the, uh, the Freedom of Information Act. Now, of course, that excluded all congressional papers. That would be inconvenient. It provided basically that if the KGB had sent a letter to the FBI demanding documents, not the FBI, the CIA, the CIA would have to go through all of its files to try to find responsive documents, and then they had to cross through the lines that they could establish would do identifiable harm. This was absolutely outrageous. It cost a fortune. Philip Agee, we now know was a Cuban DGI Soviet agent, uh, cost them $200,000 digging in to find documents in response to a single FOIA request. Now, as soon as we apply FOIA to Congress, they're going to say, hey, maybe this wasn't such a good idea and there ought to be some constraints. And the same way with criminal laws. If we say somehow Congress is above the law, and as soon as we say nobody can search your office, that's one step down from saying you're above the law because all you've got to do is store the guns and the, and the drugs there and you're covered, that undermines the rule of law and it allows Congress to evade accountability for its sloppy work. So I say, yeah, go after them on these laws they break, and if they don't like it, maybe they'll tighten up the laws, and that'll protect us all a little better. But don't sit there and say, this is political, and we shouldn't go into their offices. We, Congress didn't scream when, when, when the FBI went into judicial down from saying you're above the law, because all you've got to do is store the guns and the, and the drugs there, and you're covered. That undermines the rule of law, and it allows Congress to evade accountability for its sloppy work. So I say, yeah, go after them on these laws they break, and if they don't like it, maybe they'll tighten up the laws, and that'll protect us all a little better. But don't sit there and say, this is political, and we shouldn't go into their offices. We, Congress didn't scream when, when, when the FBI went into judicial chambers. Right. Congress they, didn't why scream when they, they went into law the judiciary that screams. Well, but the point is, none of the three branches, you know, again, go back to Madison Federalist 47. The definition of tyranny is a concentration of all power in one body, whether elective, appointed, whatever. Or alliance between 
branches. Well, there is a risk of abuse, but again, that's checked in so many ways. Congress has incredible power if the judiciary and the executive are conspiring against it. The press is a major weapon, and ultimately the voters. The people in this room are the sampling of the sovereign authority of this country. We watch what's going on. If we say the president is acting abusively towards Congress or the courts, we'll have a new president the next election. I'm sure of that. Uh, that, that, to me, is the ultimate check in our system. And separation of powers does not mean concentrating all authority in the Congress. I think we need to leave it there. Thank, thanks very much to both of our speakers. Enjoy the job. Well done. Good job. Thank you all for coming.